morning, church. Good to have you here this morning. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, this, this time to come together, to open up your word freely, without fear, to study it, to learn from it, to be to be moved and molded by it. We thank you for the story of redemption that is painted from start to finish in the Word. It shows us your love and your compassion and your desire for us. It would help our eyes to see this and our hearts to be willing to receive this redemption, this salvation that you offer. Lord, it's in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. So I mentioned last week, Wes already mentioned this morning that, that we're entering into what, uh, in a liturgical calendar or a church calendar for, for more uh, mainline or high churches is what they're called. Um, we've, we've entered into the period of Lent, the season of Lent, which is kind of the thing the season that leads us up to the work of Christ on the cross. Its purpose is to kind of focus our attention upon our need for a Savior, our, our sinfulness, our, our brokenness, and our need for a Savior. Um, and so what we're going to be doing, not quite as as, um, as closely observed as we have in the last couple of years, but we're going to take the same amount of time. We're going to do a very similar thing by, by looking through the whole Bible uh, to prepare our hearts for and then to respond uh, to the story of Christ's death and resurrection. So the next six weeks, as we get closer to Easter, we'll be more reflecting on our sinfulness and what what God has done for us. And then as, as we get to Easter, we'll have an e a season of Easter afterward, about seven weeks afterward, where we'll, we'll, we'll kind of look at um, now what, you know, the now what question of Jesus has done something for me, what is that? mean for me. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll start in Genesis and we'll end uh, in Revelation at the end of our Easter season. So uh, I'm not going to spend any more time explaining that. Turn to Genesis 3. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and, the, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard, you, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who, whom you gave to me, she, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I hate and then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, uh, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth the children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she, had, she was the mother of all living. When the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Lord, again, we ask your presence and your spirit to teach us the truths of this passage <clears throat> okay, so before we jump into the text proper, we have to kind of get our bearings in, in where we are in the Bible. Maybe you're going, well, we're in Genesis 3, the very beginning of the Bible, uh, and you would be right. There's kind of more that we have to take into consideration. Many of you, if you've been coming here for a couple years, know my love and maybe fascination and uh, nerdiness when it comes to the book of Genesis. I love Genesis. I think I think I can safely say it is actually my favorite book of the Bible. It is complex. It's interesting. It's it's diverse, deep. It's just so much wonderful stuff in Genesis. And 
in particular, there's a lot of really good stuff in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. This is kind of what we call classified as, as the prehistory section of the Bible because it kind of comes before any particular person that we can go, okay, there's his grave or whatever. We can do that with Abraham. That's not that what happens before Genesis 12 is not history, but it's just a term. Okay. Genesis is different from every other book of the Bible in its composition in one extremely important way. It is very far removed from the stories, the writer and the stories are very far removed. So even even the gospels, so, you know, gospels are written maybe 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death, but that's still those people were experiencing the stories that Jesus that that, that uh, Jesus did and was a part of, right? Uh, uh, excuse me, Matthew and John were there with Jesus when he fed the 5,000, for example. Now, yes, the writing. A little while later, but it's still their experiences they're writing down. Genesis, we believe that Moses is the is the author of Genesis, or at least the primary author of Genesis. Or at least it's my my belief that I hold. Uh, and, it, and and so since we believe that, or we, uh, I'm going to presume that upon your belief system, maybe um, the earliest story in Genesis is the last stories, chapters you know 45, 49 to 50. These happen 400, 440 years before Moses writes them down. Moses doesn't experience these stories. And, and getting back to Genesis chapter 3, it's way further than that. And so what happens with Genesis, different than all the other books of the Bible, is that there is this very long history of, of oral tradition, oral communication, that happens uh, passing down the stories from generation to generation to generation. It's, it's really only uh, in, in, at about that time when Moses starts to write down where people start to shift from being people who predominantly give and pass on information through storytelling to, to written, right? So we today, we pass on information through books, through the written word, right? Because it's, it's, it's neat, it's preserved, it doesn't really change based on somebody's opinion, although we can change it based on people's opinions, so on and so forth, but... but at this time, the stories were passed down from father to son and from father to son and from father to son. And so what Genesis is, is the, the writing down of all these stories. Now, the reason why this matters is it changes the way we think about the details of the story. And the details become very, very important to how we understand what is being taught to us. The example that I that I, I like to give because it's it's a little bit more obvious than maybe some of the other places is Genesis chapter one. I often say Genesis chapter one is really not about creation. I mean it is, it's telling us the story of creation, but it's not that's not the point of Genesis one. The point of Genesis one is God. We learn so much about God in the details of the story of Genesis one. When God says, let there be light, he speaks and, and light happens and darkness is pushed back. And he pushes back the, the waters of chaos and he, and he makes land and he makes man and he does all this stuff. It's all, all telling us something about God, first and primarily. Again, it's not an argument that Genesis 1 is just made up. No, not at all. It's telling us something about God. And the same thing happens with Genesis 3. It's really much less about about Adam and Eve's sin as it is about our sin. It's about it's kind of about us. 
And actually, even one step further, it's not even as much about us and our sinfulness as it is about what God does in response to our sinfulness. So we approach Genesis a little bit different, especially Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. Before we look at Genesis 3, we kind of have to set the stage of what happens in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is creation, and it's very it's very cosmic. In fact, we use a different word. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 all use different names for God. Maybe you've, never, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't noticed this in the past. Genesis 1, it's the word in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is kind of the basic term for deity. It would be like in English, just simply saying deity. Uh, the, the deity did this, or the deity... And the deity uh, spoke and created, and so on and so forth. It's very, it's very big. It's very broad, and that's what Genesis looks like. It's a, it's big picture kind of stuff. God is distant. When God finally makes man, He doesn't make Adam and Eve. He makes men and women, male and female. He created them, and it's plural, and it's all men and women. It's not very intimate, and the name reflects this. Genesis two. Is, is another creation account, but it's much more personal. It's much more personal, and the name changes. The, the use of the name changes. It's not Elohim anymore. It's Yahweh. It's just the divine name of God, which we translate into English as Lord in all capital letters. Uh, the, the Hebrew people had a great respect for the divine name of God, and so instead of saying or writing Yahweh, they would write Adonai, which is the Hebrew term for Lord, and so we kind of take that same thing, but we want to make sure that there's a differentiation. So we capitalize all the letters. So it's, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, which is a, a personal name for God. And the story in Genesis 2 is much more intimate. It's not God creating just man and woman. It's God creating Adam and, and, then, and then Eve. Eve doesn't get her name until later, but Adam and Eve. It's much more personal. It's much more intimate. And it's much more close, right? He places Adam in the garden. He gives Adam a task. Tend the garden. Genesis 1 and, and the first couple of chapter, first couple of verses of Genesis 2, where it's still the first story, God gives Adam, gives man dominion to fill and subdue the earth. Genesis 2, he goes, Here's a garden, tend it. Adam had a job in the Garden of Eden. He was supposed to work the ground and make crops and 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 name the animals and tend the animals and have dominion over them. Genesis 1 teaches us that God. God creates for man, actually. Man becomes the pinnacle of his creation. And in a lot of ways, it sure seems like the reason why God creates was to make man and put us at the center of, it, of his creation. To glorify him, ultimately. Man is at the center. And in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God gives man this charge, fill and subdue the earth. Take possession of it. Take possession of it. Have it. Tend it. Care for it. Work the ground. Tend the flocks. And everything, every single thing, is given to man. Except for one tree. And when we think about the fall, which is Genesis 3, when we think about the story of the fall of man, so often... 
our the logic that we go through to tell the story is that God creates, puts Adam in the garden, and then says, don't eat that tree from that tree. But that's not really how it goes. It's actually much more shocking. God says, I've just created all of this stuff. This beautiful and wonderful and complex and diverse world and universe. You, mankind, take it, fill it, do it. It's all yours. Everything is yours. There is only one, one restriction to what God gives to me. And that's the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, like I said, the reason why I, I tell you that the stories in Genesis in Genesis are more about the details than they are about the story is because that tree isn't just another tree. There's a reason why it's given a name. Most of our Bibles translated and use lowercase letters. It shouldn't be lowercase letters. It's a title. It's the title of the tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's representative of the knowledge of good and evil. It's really not that clever. It's not, it's not hard to figure that out. It represents for us the knowledge of good and evil. And I think it actually, maybe better put, represents for us the ability to choose what is good and evil. And God says, you can have everything. It's all yours. In fact, I created it so that you could take possession of it. Except for this one thing. The knowledge of good and evil. I think it become, makes Genesis chapter 3 just a little bit more shocking. Now we just think, oh God just willy-nilly throws out a couple trees like, like it's a guessing game or something ridiculous. That's kind of how we think of Genesis. That's not what God does. It's a very specific tree, and it's a very, it's a very tiny part of God's creation when you think about it. So it really makes it more shocking. And, and again, to kind of pull this just a little bit further forward, so, so often we look at the punishment, and we go, God, punishing Adam and Eve so severely for just eating an apple. That's not what that's not what's happening. Much more profound. It's much more much more profound. Let's let's look at it. Let's see what happens in the story. We're first introduced to a new character in, in verse one, the serpent. We're introduced to God in chapter one. We're introduced to Adam and Eve in chapter two. Now we're introduced to the opposition, the serpent. In English speaking countries, the, the shrewd animal is the fox, right? You kind of think the fox is if you're being if you're being crafty or, or whatever you do, you're being foxy tricky. It's just part of the culture. In Semitic speaking in Semitic speaking countries like like Israel and in in uh, the Middle East and in, in Egypt and places like that, it was the snake. The snake is the crafty animal. So the snake, as we're told, is the most crafty of the beasts of the field. Lord God has made. He comes to the woman, and, and, and we'll just leave that for a second. We'll just leave that altogether, actually, today. We're not going to talk about how the, the snake is speaking. We don't really have an answer for you. So the snake comes to the woman, which is Eve, which we'll learn later is Eve. He says, did God, really, did God really say, did he actually say that you can't eat anything? Right? That's what he's saying. Did he really say that? Now, this happens to us today. Think about it for a minute. Think about it for a minute. Think of just how much you have. 
right? Statistically, when we talk about we talk about the wealth of our current societies, in particular the wealth of Americans, if you are born in the United States, you are among the top 1% of 1% of humans in human history. That means the wealthiest people in the first century when Jesus is walking around, you're wealthier. Just by nature of being born in the United States, even if you're homeless, it's really quite absurd. And you know what we do? God has given us everything, and we go, but, but I want that. And out of selfishness, and out of, out of entitlement, or whatever term you want to put on it, we look at these other things and we go, but, but God, but God, why didn't you bless me with that? Satan comes to us and he says the same thing that he's been saying forever. Did God really say you can't have it? And Eve rightfully answers. She's like, no, he didn't say that. No, actually, actually what he did say was we can have everything. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Of all of them. The only thing that God said not to eat is this tree. It's a fruit from this one tree in the midst of the garden. He said, don't touch it, lest you die. And then Satan does another one of his crafty little things. He tells a lie, but it's not quite, ugh, it's not quite blatant. No, I think if Satan would tell us bold-faced lies, we would figure it out. Right? We'd figure it out. If it was just, so obvious, that can't possibly be true. We go, ah, that's not true. What Satan does is he takes the truth and he just turns it. He shifts it. He twists it. Now, over time, the twisting and the turning becomes so twisted and obscure that it that it's no longer resembles. Then it's the bold-faced lie. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start there. What Satan actually says, or what the serpent says, and Peter tells us in 1 Peter First or second Peter, the, the serpent of Satan. What 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 he actually says here is is not uh, it's not really false. It's not very honest either. It's not necessarily false. He says he, he, the serpent says, "You will not surely die." He uses a different Hebrew word there. You will not surely die. And what happens when Adam and Eve eat the fruit? They don't immediately die. At least not yet. Right? That's, not, that's not quite a lie. It's not quite the truth. For God knows that when you, eat of, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened. <laughs> as soon as they eat, they realize their nakedness. That's exactly what happens. In the biggest, the, the, the most, the toughest one, right, that Satan gets, he gets Eve with. He says, you will be like God. But you, you, what, what Satan wants Eve to think is that we'll be an all-powerful deity, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're going to become like God. You're going to know what is good and evil. You're going to have your eyes open to, to sinfulness, which is what God already sees. And so he has, in some ways, yeah, he's right. Again, ah, it's just, oh, it's, it's so clever, right? Again, God, Satan does this to us still today. He twists. He, he makes you go, yeah, ah, 
It does sound, yeah. Oh, I could, I could justify that. And so Eve, she reaches out and she takes the fruit. And by the way, she turns around and she hands it right to Adam, who is standing with her. Adam is the one who is given this, the command. You know that? You ever notice that? In Genesis 2, Genesis 2, God says to Adam, don't eat of this tree. And then he creates Eve. It is Adam's responsibility to pass this information along. It's Adam's responsibility. He fails. We do this, right? We, we do exactly the same thing that Eve does. Exactly the same thing that Adam does. As we hear Satan's lies, we hear Satan's deceptions, and we, and we reach out and we, and we, take, we take the knowledge of good and evil and we make it ours. We claim that we're God. You know, I've given you this picture before, but, man, it's critical to how we understand the Bible. Right? We live in a culture that, that currently is trying to remove God from morality. Maybe we should say it more honestly. We're, we're currently living in a, solid, a society that has removed God from morality. By the way, it just doesn't work. It can't. Logically, it cannot work to remove the, the outside force that determines the line. Every person has a line. I guarantee it. Every single, pretty much every single person. I think what's even shocking is if you study serial killers and, 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 and serial rapists and things like that, they have a limit, right? That's why people who, who abuse children in in prisons are often treated very poorly because there's, that's their line. But you know what we do is we take this line, we make this line, and then, and then we live by this line, but it's only ever relative, right? I'm not a murderer or a rapist, so I'm not, I'm not wicked. I didn't commit mass genocide, so I'm not wicked. But those closer to the line, those aren't as bad. So then we go, you know what? I don't want to hurt her feelings. And we tell a little white lie. What do we do? Just just lie, just a little bit. I'm not not unrighteous. I'm not not sinning, but I'm I'm protecting her. Protecting him. I'm protecting... Fill in the blank. Then pretty soon... We look at that line, and now it's not a little white lie that gets us across the line. Now it's just a little bit bigger lie. Sure, I know how to use Microsoft Excel on my application. Take the line down just a little bit further. And pretty soon, pretty soon now, oh, oh, if I, if I tell a little bit bigger lie about my coworker, I'll get the raise over him. Until eventually we get to the point we get to the point where there is no line. And if we're intellectually honest, which sadly we're not in our culture, it's gone. Not to be too heavy handed, but we're murdering babies by the millions. And we barely flinch at that. 
we reach out and we take the fruit and we eat it and we say, I could be like God. I can make that decision. I can decide what's right and wrong. So many of the things that, that God determines are lines in the sand that He determines because there must be a line in the sand. Or else nothing can be right and wrong. And our culture is proving this, rapidly proving this to be true. That the more we take away God from the equation, the more that we take God out of the right to decide what is moral, the more morality disappears. And we take this away from God. We take it away from God. And And then what do we do? I told you that this story tells us a lot about who we are, right? We could have literally the world. Adam and Eve literally have the world, and I'm using that correctly. And it's not enough. And so they break God's command. They sin against the Lord. And God responds. He says he's walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the evening. And Adam and Eve here, they've noticed they're naked. And nakedness is not the sin. Nakedness is, again, representative of, of, of being exposed. Right? This morning we were reading in Ephesians, and it tells us that we need to, we need to bring our sins to light. We don't like doing this because we don't want anybody to know that we're sinful, even though we all know that we're all sinful. And I know that you know that I'm sinful, and yet I'm still terrified to expose my sinfulness to the light. And you know what I do in my nakedness? Because I know that God can see my sinfulness. I run and I hide like a fool. Adam, Adam and Eve, they hear God coming, and they go and they hide in the trees like, like they're being secretive. And God comes, and you know what God does? He comes in, and He wipes everything out. No, He doesn't. See, sometimes when we, when we hear people talking about the Bible, that's the only logical explanation of how that story plays out. But it's not. In the moment of Adam and Eve's sin, and it is sin, and rightfully, God has every, every just reason to put them to death. But He doesn't. He doesn't do this. Instead, God seeks Adam and Eve. And He calls out to them, Adam, Eve, where are you? Now we as, as people who've read the rest of the Bible know that God knows where Adam and Eve are. He seeks them out finds them. And yes, God confronts their sin. He confronts their sin. And there's ramifications to their sin. But I think it's really important that we see what John told, tells us in the Gospel. Jesus tells us in the Gospel. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. You are in fact condemned already. I think as we read this story, I think, I think the punishments that are 
given out by God aren't really punishments given out by God. I think it's the ramification of sin, right? It's not God's harsh punishment. It's the reality of sin entering into the world. It's the reality of of what happens when sin enters into the world. No, God in this story is not a wrathful and vengeful God. Like so often we portray, portray Him in the Old Testament. But God is a God of mercy. Not bringing the punishment that is rightfully due to Adam. God is a God of, of grace. And then He doesn't, he doesn't abandon Adam. Rather, he cries out to them. Again, so much, so very much of my life as a sinner looks exactly like this story. When I sin, fall short, or I do something that I know, I, I, I don't do something that I know I should have done, and you know what I do? I cower and I hide. Because for some reason, I think that God is just he's just waiting. He just can't wait to just be rid of me. Put me to death. Send me to hell. That's not what God is doing. He's in the midst of the garden. He's crying out, Ryan, where are you? Again, we cannot downplay the fact that there are ramifications to sin because there are. And really, in a lot of ways, there must be. Sin does need to be punished. And and I think, again, if we press this issue, we all get to the point where we're far enough away from the line where we agree with that statement. If, If Hitler would not have killed himself and would have been found... And we put him on trial and said, it's okay, whatever. I think every person on earth would have been like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem very just. Justice has to be there. There has to be. Or else God really isn't caring. God really isn't loving. So there is ramification for sin. We're told that Eve is going to have pain in childbearing and Adam's going to have pain in working the ground. And this isn't just about childbearing and just about working the ground. And I know this is going to sound sexist and patriarchal and whatever, and you can think whatever you want. It's not what I'm saying. But the point of this story is that the general idea of, of the role of the woman is to bear children and the general idea of the role of the man is to, is to work and to provide. And so what what the punishment is, is that those things are your general rules, general roles, excuse me, are going to be difficult. Life has just become painful because of sin. And again, life is painful because of sin. It really is not true that people who are generally more unrighteous or immoral have better lives. Yes, there are people who are immoral and have great lives and have great things, but their lives aren't necessarily better. Most of the time where sin abounds, pain abounds. 
But the one that I want to really hit again, we see in the story of, of the fall that God is not, he's not, he's not out, he's not, he's not dying to punish us. He's He's, I, I, I want to get you. The slip of the tongue, I said, dying to, to get us. But that's exactly what God does, right? He dies to get us. And we, we see it right here in verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in this passage, we're not told that this is the, this is the sacrifice that's going to bring us back to God. It's not what... It's not what happens yet. We're not told that story in the history of redemption just yet. But right there it is. There's Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're already at Jesus. We're already at He's going to come in and do something. Even in, the, in a couple of verses later, in verses 20 and 21, where, where Adam names Eve, uh, and then verse 21, the Lord God, the Lord God makes Adam and Eve garments of skin to cover them. Is very reminiscent of the sacrificial system. Genesis 1, Elohim. Genesis 2, Yahweh. Genesis 3, the Lord God. It's one of my favorite Hebrew names for God. It's Adonai Yahweh. And the reason why we translate it as the Lord God is because we're using Adonai as the as the stand-in for Yahweh, and, and we can't do that Yahweh or Adonai, Adonai. So we go the Lord God. It's both personal and intimate, and just and above us, holy. God is both personal and, in, and intimate in Yahweh, and just and holy. This is our relationship with God based on this reality, based on this, on this progression of stories. God is creator. He's good and powerful and right. God is personal and intimate. God loves and cares for us in our sin, in our shortcomings. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't tell us to continue in them. In fact, Jesus will tell us many times, go and sin no more. He dies for us. Lord God, we humbly come out from hiding in response to your calling to us, your seeking of us. We know our sins. Sometimes we feel much more exposed than we do at other times. But we know our sins. And Lord, we are 
shamed, burdened, terrified. For Lord, your word teaches us that you don't wait for us to realize your love for us. But instead, you, you come into this world. You walk in the cool of the garden. You suffer under Pontius Pilate. And you die on a cross so that we can be reconciled to you. Or give us ears to hear you calling to us. Give us ears to hear your voice, your love. Jesus, precious, holy.